First Peter. First Peter. Uh, you know, anybody that's been in my classes for very long, that one of the things that I don't ordinarily do is spend very much time reading or learning about what other people say about a book or a verse. And the reason is, not that I don't ever do that, but the reason is I, I always want to draw my own conclusions. If I agree with them, great. If I don't, well, I still want to draw my own conclusions based on what the Bible teaches uh, because I don't want to just believe what somebody said. So that gives me some challenge in the book of First Peter. Uh, you know, recently with the books of Hebrews and James and First Peter, I told you that we were kind of getting out of the chronology now. We had been uh, chronological for three and a half years now, and all of a sudden you get to these little letters at the end, and and it gets a little more difficult to date them, or at least I guess it's the case that people don't agree on the dating. And I don't think that, or even the recipient of the books, uh, I don't think that I, I would certainly not be dogmatic on the issues, but I do want to teach what I believe. So, uh, so I do want to introduce this book with what I'll let you know what some of the authors, a lot of the, most of the authors believe, and then I'll let you know what I, what I believe as well. You remember when we talked about the book of Hebrews, we dealt with the fact that it was written to Jewish Christians, right? And they were, they were receiving this book somewhere around uh, AD 68, right? Remember there had been persecution that had, had grown significantly under Nero because of the fact that the city of Rome had burned, and to deflect that that off of him, he blamed it on Christians, and so it became illegal toward the end of the uh, the last six years, really, of uh, the existence of Jerusalem and the Jewish system, at least being practiced. Uh, so that persecution developed, and some of those Jewish Christians were drawing back. When we got to the book of James, I told you it was also to Jewish Christians, but it backed up in its chronology. And what I meant by that is, I thought that it was probably the first book written of the New Testament, and I connected it to the timing right after the spreading of uh, uh, Christians, the scattering of the Christians from Jerusalem at the hands of Saul of Tarsus. And there were several reasons that I won't get back into on that one. But now as we get to First Peter, we're jumping forward again, but not as far as Hebrews. Uh, let me say this. Most of the authors that I have read, in fact, my study Bible itself, says this book is written to Jews... Uh, early, uh, Jewish Christians, early, similar to the book of James. Uh, there are other writers who say that this book is written to the Gentiles. Uh, I disagree with both of them, and I disagree with the timing. Uh, I think this book was written to both, and I think there are specific sections that are that are highlighted to both. I mean, we're going to read about things that are definitely distinctly Jewish and connect to a Jewish history, yet at the same time we're going to read about people who were not God's people, but now God's, are God's people. Well, that was clearly the way that the writers of the New Testament referred to the Gentiles, especially Paul, and there are others like that in here. But the point is, I think this book was written in a general sense to both Jewish and Gentile Christians who were facing the same thing, yet from different perspectives. I also believe that this book was written about A.D. 63. And the reason is, as you see the early church developing in the book of Acts, you see some things occurring as far as persecution is concerned, yet it is primarily coming from the Jewish nation. That doesn't change until A.D. 64, as I talked about a little while ago. 
What the author, what Peter's doing in 1 Peter is he's talking about what they're going through and the suffering that they're dealing with and even their, their temptation to draw back, just like James talked about and the Hebrews writer talked about. But he talks about the fact that you need to be strong because something more is coming quickly. And that puts that destruction of Rome as far as the fire is concerned and now the illegality of Christianity in place. Uh, yet it, it is written to the Christians, again, both Jew and Gentile, who are in the, the area of Asia Minor. Well, those people don't exist until, uh, at least not on a scale that would be recognized as a letter like this, until after the, the missionary journeys of Paul. So, uh, so you can't go early and you can't go late. Again, I don't want to be too dogmatic on that issue, but I do want you to understand that I think this book is written in the, to the churches in Asia Minor, written to both Jew and Gentile. It's written about the destruction that's coming on them, or rather the persecution that's coming on them that's worse than the persecution they've already been dealing with. Did that confuse everybody? Great, that was my, that was my goal. Okay, First Peter, let's start in chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now that, that, uh, that introduction really sounds a whole lot like the ones that Paul would write as he writes uh, each of his letters to the various churches or even individuals. But there are a couple of things that Peter highlights here as he writes it that I think are significant to, well, to, to the beginning of the book, to lay a foundation so that he gets within them the strength and the courage to do what he's asking them to do. One of them is he's writing to these, these Christians in Asia Minor, like I've already told you. But the second thing is these are Christians because of three things. The foreknowledge of God, Paul wrote about that in Ephesians, didn't he? He said before the worlds began that God had put in place this plan as to who would be saved. And it would be those who would be under the blood of Jesus, right? So the foreknowledge of God made it possible for even these people in Galatia Minor to be Christians. But on the other hand, what was it about God the Spirit there? How are, what does sanctification mean? What does it mean to be sanctified? Set aside, set apart from something else, right? And in this case, he's talking about being set apart from the world. But the question is, what is it that sets us apart from the world? The blood of Jesus does wash us away our sins, but how do you know about it? Because of the gospel. So what the Spirit delivers tells us not only how to access the blood of Jesus, but also how to live differently than the world. So God the Father foreordained a plan god the spirit delivered that plan remember i've told you this before the godhead has the same roles all throughout history and god the son executed the plan he came he lived sinlessly his perfect life yet he died for the sins of the uh, of us our sins and so there are three personalities of the godhead those who would teach you otherwise it's pretty simple but the point that he's making here in the beginning is you need to recognize that God is on your side. The Father, Son, and Spirit are all on your side. They're trying to get you where you need to be to be faithful to him. All right, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's not the end of the sentence. And I, you know I, I don't usually like to stop till the sentence is read. But these are long sentences here. So I do want to stop. So now he just praises God. But the reason he praises God is being... What did it say? He has done what? He has abundant mercy and he's done something. Begotten us again. Do you remember on the occasion when... There's a man that comes to Jesus at night. You remember his name? Nicodemus, right? So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and the conversation begins by him saying, Look, we know you come from God because nobody could do the things that you do except you come from God, right? And so Jesus says to him in this teaching, You've got to be born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he says, How's that possible? How's it possible for a guy to enter again into his mother's womb and be born again? And so Jesus explains that the born again that he's talking about is not natural birth. It's a water and spirit thing. It's God delivering a message and it's being buried in water and the blood of Jesus changing us. It's called a new birth. Born again. Well, that's exactly what Peter is saying is happening to these, or has happened, to these people who are in uh, Asia Minor. But the significant part of it is not just that they have been born again. It's who did it. You know, there's a great danger. I... I, I really despise extremes, and, and I know it's easy for it to happen. You know, it's like a, a grandfather clock. The pendulum goes from side to side, and if you're leaving one side, it tends to go all the way to the other side. I know people like to go to extremes, but there's a balance in what God delivers us in everything. And there is no possible way that anybody can ever be saved outside of the blood of Jesus. Right? You get that. You can't ever earn your way to heaven. But on the other side of that, you cannot be right with God, James chapter 2, without having the, the obedience. You can't be saved without the obedience either. It takes God's message delivered and our willingness to be humble enough based on our faith to obey Him. That's what does what to us? Makes us born again. So whose fault is that? Who saves you? Who do you give credit for saving you? yourself you know i talk frequently about one of the issues that really bothers me in our world because it enters into our thinking sometimes is this idea of people being self-made you know you're a self-made person in your education you're a self-made person in your home you're a self-made person in your wealth and we talk about being self-made all the time and that plays into sometimes who we are as christians you know uh, I know if I, if I pass away and somebody does my funeral, here's what they can say. Oh, he was a good guy. He's a good guy. I know he's going to be in heaven because you might not agree, but I'll say it. Uh, he'd be in heaven because he's a good guy, right? He, he, he does good things for people, and he's always at worship services, and, you know, he, he preaches even. He's got to go to heaven if he preaches, right? Okay, what does any of that have to do with sins being washed away? So by the fact that I obey God... In obeying the gospel does not change the fact that God is the one that saves us. And so the point he's making here in the beginning is he is praising God for the fact that these people have been saved by the power of God himself. And that's where the message came from to them anyway, wasn't it? Keep going. Let me finish up uh, the end of three again and then keep reading it forward. And that way we keep our sentence. He's begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you now the reason this is significant is because it connects to a jewish way of thinking you know from the time that abraham was called out of ur 
and given this message from God, this promise of to, from God that he would have all of these descendants, as numberless as the seashore, he also told him about a land, didn't he? He would give him this land, or his descendants would possess this land. Now, in the meantime, they have all those years where they, they wander around in Canaan for a while. They end up in Egypt. They end up down there as slaves. They come back, and God makes them a nation at Mount Sinai, right? But as he makes them a nation, he builds this law upon the foundation that is the Ten Commandments, and a portion of that law has to do with the land. It's to be inherited, isn't it? And so as they go into the land... And Joshua leads them to victory. It's divided up. And they are specifically told, you don't take your inheritance and give it to another. This inheritance stays the way God set it up. So the Jews understood that. It could not be changed. So he uses that to connect to this. Because today, inheritance is quite, I mean, quite different. I'm spending my kids' inheritance. You know, there's... I'd be surprised if they get a card. I don't know if they'll get anything. So it's not the same today. But what God has designed for us can't go away. It can't uh, be stolen. It can't, uh, the stock market crash won't destroy it. And that's because it's not here. Oh my goodness, wouldn't it be terrible to live in this life thinking this is it? I've got a good life, I do. I'm happy with my life. I am truly blessed. But if this is all there is, I could do without it. If this is all there is, that's not much of an inheritance. So I've got to recognize that all this decaying stuff here is not it. God's got something more promised to us. And so he challenges them. To, he, he's, I'm telling you in advance. The problem is they're drawing back. And so he's challenging them to remain faithful through all of these things that all these persecutors are taking away from them. And what's fixing to get much worse as it becomes illegal to be a Christian under Nero, it's fixing to get much worse. So he says, don't worry about it. If they take everything that you have, God has an inheritance waiting for you, and it will never be, never be weakened and never be taken away and never be destroyed because it's not even here. Give you reason to keep going, right? All right, let's read further. Again, it wasn't the end of the sentence, so it does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God, through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That actually is talking about eternity, but here's the thing. He connects our faith to what? Yeah, but something else. What was connected to God there with our faith? Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation to be revealed. Kept by what? The power of God through faith. So in other words, what he's saying here is, you people are being, does God provide for us? Does God protect us? Does that mean we're never going to face any harm? Does it never mean we're never going to have difficulties? No. What it means is, the one who has the power to speak into existence this world, the one who has the power, and they know their history, so the one who has the power to, to raise nations and to take nations down... Is, is, has provided his power through them because of their faith. Well, what if you step back? What do you give up? You know, as we talked about, especially as we went through the book of Hebrews, the easy reason, and we can understand this if you can put yourself in, the, in their place, the easy reason to back off and to hang on a little bit of the Jewish law under the book of Hebrews was because all these family members and others around you who were persecuting you, if you go back and hang on to a little bit of the old law... 
Well, they take the pressure off of you, right? Okay, but if these people draw back, is what Peter's saying, when you draw back, the pressure may come off of you, but so does the power. So you actually lose. You back off and the pressure may lessen, but you also don't have God's power with you anymore. Why? Because you stepped away from your faith. Keep reading. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, not the end of the sentence, but I want to stop ask you a question. If you were at home, or it doesn't matter if you heard right now, if you got a message that said your house is on fire, and you ran there, and you had time to go inside and get... I don't know, one, two, three things maybe. What would you get first? You don't, don't list it for me. Just think about it. And as you think about it, realize that the thing you would go for first is what's most important to you, right? If your family's inside of it, are you going to worry about going in and getting your bank book? Or are you going to try to get your family? It's what's most important to you, right? So what he's saying at this point is you need to recognize that you're, your faith is more precious than... All this stuff that you're losing because of your faith. If you get to the place to where you give up your faith to hang on to what you have here, you've given up your inheritance. You've given up your power. You've given up your hope. And as a consequence of that, things are not going to get better. In fact, you're going to not just be able to have to step back, but as things get worse with the persecution, they're going to have to go all the way back, aren't they? I mean, Rome's not even going to make it acceptable to be a halfway Christian. You're either a Christian or you're not, as far as Rome is concerned. Start the end of the verse again. Glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now that's one of the reasons that I say that this book is written later, later because there were people in the 40s who saw him. Right? There were people, especially the Jews, who were there during his earthly ministry. Some obeyed the gospel at the day of Pentecost and spread out, who would still be alive when this was written, if it was written in the early 40s. These people hadn't seen him. How can you love someone that you have never seen? That's a tough question. How can you love someone that you haven't seen? You kids ever had an imaginary friend? Yeah. And they talk to them and they play with them and you videotape them and laugh about it, right? Uh, but they love their imaginary friends. Is that what it is with God? You love God because he's your imaginary friend? Can you even know that he's there? What is faith? What is faith according to Hebrews 11? The substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen they had not seen jesus these people in asia minor who were the christians especially the gentiles but the jews as well evidently are not people who had been there to see the earthly ministry of jesus they did not see him teach they did not see him die they did not see him after the resurrection and yet they have faith that's not a leap in the dark it has to be based on some kind of evidence so what they have as evidence is well i don't know who actually went there maybe some of it was when paul and and Barnabas went out, or maybe when Paul and Barnabas split up and Barnabas went separately, that may have been part of it as well. But somebody showed up with the gospel, didn't they? And in the first century, when somebody showed up with the gospel, they also had something else with them. What was it? Power. 
Yeah, if they were an apostle, they had a lot of power. They could pass power on. But even if they weren't, they had power that, from the laying on of hands. And so they spoke miraculously, didn't they? Not everybody can do that. That's evidence. And so when somebody would teach them about all the prophets, remember as Paul would go out and he would teach about the prophets, he talked about that a lot because that's what impacted him. The prophets had said this and this and this, and look at how all of it was fulfilled, and we rejected him, and yet look at all of it. And they would see that, and that's evidence that he exists. And so the point he's making to them now is, you need to recognize that the reason you love him is because of the evidence. Well, if the evidence is true, then why back away from him? Well, because of this. What you see sometimes scares you more than what you don't see. Yeah, I told you the story probably a few times. I don't even remember how accurate the story is or how to tell it, but it was about a little kid that was in the hospital and they were trying to encourage him and they were trying to pray for him and all of that and he was worried and they said, you know, we're going to pray for you and Jesus is going to help you. And he said, well, right now what I need is somebody with skin on. And the point was somebody that could hold your hand that can hug you, and you don't feel that from God because he's not here, right? What you're feeling here right now sometimes causes you to give up what you know by faith. So he's telling them, look, you've got to have enough faith to get through this because of the evidence. You get to the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Verse 10, I'm probably not going to get through this. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. How many times? And we go to the easy one. The easy one's not even dealing with the prophets. It comes straight from God. But you got Genesis chapter 3, and you have Adam and Eve who have now sinned, and God shows up, and he proclaims, their punishment, and then he sacrifices this animal and provides them with clothes, and he talks to them about through her seed the worlds would be blessed, and he was telling them about somebody that was coming, right? But when? Did they know? Did Adam and Eve have any idea what that meant? No, nope. they just knew God said it was going to happen, right? Okay, and then you move forward, and you have sacrifices now, and all these sacrifices are pointing to something. But when? You had the Passover in Egypt and you have them sacrificing this lamb and following all these instructions with the blood on their doors and now they've got to go out for all these years of their nation. They've got to do that every year. Not the house and everything, but the lamb, right? They have a Passover lamb because they're looking forward to something. When? You think when they sacrificed that first one or maybe the hundredth one, somebody said, how long is this going to go? How about somebody like Daniel who is prophesying during the captivity and he talks about the 70 weeks. That's about as specific as you could get in the prophets. And they still don't know. See, that's the thing. You know, when we're told that no uh, prophecy of Scripture ever comes by man, we're not told about, we're not being ta- told about inspiration, but we're being, or rather we're, uh, interpretation, we're being told about inspiration. When Amos was sent from the south to prophesy to the north about their coming captivity, it wasn't because Amos had sat down and figured this out and worked up a sermon. It's because God gave him a message and he went and delivered it. That's the way it worked with the prophets. So they knew what message God told them to give. That did not mean they understood all of it. 
And so they search to try to figure out what does this mean? What does it mean about this one who is coming? And the, and the people listen to it. And that's why when Jesus in his earthly ministry, we, we tend to look at this backwards. We see all the rejection by the Jews and we just think they were terrible people who didn't see anything. But the week that he dies, as he's walking into the city, they're all shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's because they saw it. It just didn't turn out to be what they wanted it to be. So they listened to the, the leaders of the Jews. But they did see it. And so these prophets were looking for this time. And the recipients of this letter, including us, by the way, uh, are those who have received uh, the fulfillment of all of that. Verse 10. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. The angels don't even know the, 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 the plan of God. They're his ministers to carry out his providence or whatever else he has to do, but they don't, they're not the plan. They don't put the plan together. They don't know the plan. So what he says is all these people all along were talking about you. All those sacrifices. And, and did they see it? Did, the, did these recipients in Asia Minor of this letter, did they, they didn't see him? Did they see him die? Did they see him resurrected? But they heard the prophets talk about it. They had that, didn't they? They had the record of the prophets talking about him. They had the evidence that it happened exactly like God said. They knew they were the recipients of the salvation that God provided through the new birth because the Holy Spirit delivered that message. This is a powerful book, isn't it? Verse 13, therefore, notice that word. That's an important word, as you know. He's concluding while he's saying all of these things, right? Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the end of that passage or that sentence, but I do want to bring up something from it. And that is that wording to be brought. The original language there is actually saying it is being brought. Not it's going to happen in the future. It's happening now. So he's saying to them, what you are, what you are as a people of God is the people that God is providing for and giving hope to and giving his grace to. You are the recipients of God's grace. Since that's true, what do you do? Gird up your loins. What's that mean? Huh? Prepared? Strong? Courageous? I would liken it to when Joshua all of a sudden has this incredible task of replacing not only the man who stood before Pharaoh and said, God said, let my people go, and then brought about all these plagues by God's power, but had been leading them in the wilderness for 40 years. Now Joshua's got to take over. That'd be scary, wouldn't it? And what's God say to him so many times in the first chapter of Joshua? Be strong and courageous. That's what this means. That's how you stand. You be strong. So he says, because all of this is true, that God's the one that gave you this new birth, that God's the one that foreknew this plan, that God's the one whose power is behind you. Since all that's true, then you need to stand as strong as you can and be courageous. Don't fall back. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Now, what does that mean? What does holy mean? Hmm? It's similar to sanctified. Yeah. But here's the thing. 
holy has a has a, a, a description. And what I mean by that is the choice between what is holy and what is not holy is not an option based on man's learning or even observation. It's an option, uh, it's an option based on God's statement. I'll give you an example. Uh, in the Old Testament, were there clean and unclean animals? Okay, could they look at them and say, you know what, this animal's kind of this animal's kind of ugly looking. I don't think I want to eat that one, so I'll call that one unclean. Is that how that happened? No. Nope. What happened? God said, avoid this one because this one's unclean. You can eat this one because this one's clean. There are categories you follow. Unclean, clean. That's holy and unholy. And so as you get to the new covenant, those restrictions aren't there. Those guidings are not there as far as eating is concerned. But that doesn't mean God is backed up off of what is holy and not holy. It's just changed. Because under the old law, there were all these physical things that happened, but they were representatives of something spiritual under the new. And so we have a spiritual holy. And so what I'm saying about that is, I don't have the right to define Christianity by my standards. I don't have the right to define morality by my opinions. God defines what is holy and what is not holy. God's direction, His statements... I don't get to choose the plan of salvation. God does that. I don't get to choose uh, the, the activities of worship. God does that. And whether or not we follow what he says determines whether or not we are also holy like he is. And what he called us to, in fact, he did this always. This is not a new covenant thing. This is an all-time thing. What he's called man to be is holy. Why? What did it say? Be holy. Why? Because I am holy. Keep going. 17. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your sojourning here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So now you have a connection again with the Jews, right? They're looking back on this law and they're, they're looking at what they learned, what was passed down from their fathers about this connection to God and about all these sacrifices and everything. And they followed it. But that's not what these people were redeemed before, right? This new birth that he's already talked about, is it because they, they celebrated the Passover? Is it because they, uh, they brought the right number or the right kind of sacrifices? Is that what made this happen? Well, no, the Hebrews writer says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to wash away sins, right? So the new birth can't happen by that old law. So what he says is you need to recognize that you, you have a father who has changed you, not based on what you learned as a Jew, but based on what he has delivered as being holy. And guess what? He won't ever go away. The reason that's significant is because you know, the, uh, again, up to AD 64, the primary persecution on Christians came from Jews, okay? And it wasn't near as bad as what would start with Nero and Rome, but what would happen is six years after it becomes illegal to be a Christian, Jewish persecution ends because their nation's destroyed. So it's not incorruptible, is it? Was the old law itself incorruptible? No, it was not. It was perfect for God's purpose, but it was not a perfect law. 
Because it didn't get rid of sins. With Jesus himself dying, the perfect lamb, without blemish lamb, the sacrifice that he makes provides this salvation apart from that old law, and it never is corrupted, never ends. Keep reading. 20. He indeed, he being Jesus, the, the, this precious blood who is shed without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So before the world's... Re- and this is not the, certainly not the only place this is ever told. Before the world's ever began, God's plan was put in place. Including when he stands there in Genesis chapter 3 and says to this woman, through your seed, the world's will be blessed. That seed was intentionally pointing to who? Yeah, at that time, John would say that he's called the Word, or the Logos, the second personality of the Godhead. That plan was here before man was ever created. The plan was here, but it wasn't fulfilled. It wasn't fulfilled for centuries. I mean, it it was so many years, and then all of a sudden, these people... Listen, uh, here's here's the reason this is so important, because we get to feeling sorry for ourselves. You know, my life's hard sometimes. It's not as easy as I'd like for it to be. And so I, I think maybe, I, maybe God ought to be better than me to me. And look, at these other, look at these people like Abraham and Solomon. Those people had some wealth, didn't they? I mean, I may not have a lot of problems, but I, and I know money won't solve all of them, but I'd like to try. <laughs> right, wouldn't you? So I'm not getting my fair share. That, that's what we start to think, right? And the truth of the matter is what he's saying is, oh, my goodness, we have so much more than any of them ever had. So much more in, in, the, in the fulfillment of God's grace and His blessings on us. We have so much, all the things they work toward, all that that nation was used for, all the sacrifices they make, we get the benefit of it. We're living it. Keep going. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Wait, 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 wait. Did we say something a while ago about God saves us, but he won't save us unless we obey him. Okay. Since you have purified yourselves, how? Okay, the blood of Jesus forgives you, but it doesn't happen if you don't obey him, right? Since you have purified your souls in obedience to the, 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 obeying the truth through the Spirit, how do you know how to follow God? The Spirit delivered a message that tells us how to follow him, right? Okay. Obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. Love one another with a fervent, fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again not of corruptible seed but incorruptible through the word of God which lives and abides forever. And I'll finish that sentence in just a minute. Oh boy, this is where it starts to get harder. It's easy for me to love God. Because he doesn't go around making me mad. But you kind of irritate me once in a while. And so it's not so easy to get along with each other, right? It's not easy to get along with each other because we have different personalities and we have different ways of doing things and we have lots of different opinions. And But we can fight about opinions. We can do that. 
But the bottom line is what he's just said, he's just made the same statement. That what this, this, this sacrifice for us, the precious Lamb of God and the inheritance and, and God's grace and salvation, all that stuff's incorruptible, right? And now he turns around and says, guess what? So is your family. Now, the thing is, your family's not perfect. It is perfect for its purposes of what God is doing with us, forgiving us and all of that. But the rest of us, how do you take, I don't know, 200 imperfect people and make them perfect? You, you can't do it, can you? So what you can do is what Paul was writing about in the book of Philippians when he talked about having the mind of Christ. That's not about everybody agreeing on every single thing. It's about having an attitude and a direction that says we're going to do what God says even when it means that there are times that our opinions are going to be different and we're going to get along anyway. See, if you're going to be in a relationship with God, you're going to be in a relationship with his family. You can't have one without the other. Let's finish it up. Because all flesh is as grass, all the glory of man as the flower of the grass, the grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Here's why you have to have this, not only this vertical relationship with God, but this horizontal relationship with each other. And that is because you're not going to stay here forever. All this is temporary. All of this is temporary. But what goes past here is this family. They call it the church. He calls it the church. He calls it the family of God. And you know what? When all this fleshly things, these fleshly things, all the, all the persecution and all the struggles and all the limitations of humanity goes away, the family of God's still there. Just in a different existence. You hear people say things like, uh, I'm not going to be a part of the church because there's hypocrites there. That's true. I'm not going to be a part of the church because there's sinners there. That's true, too. But you know the joke that everybody always says, which is still true, is you don't want to put up with them here. You want to be with them forever? You want to be with them forever? Are hypocrites going to be lost? Yeah. So I'll stay away from God's family, and I'll be lost, too, so I get stuck with them forever. I can deal with them a few hours, right? Can't be a part of God's family without being a part of God's family. All right, let's close with a prayer. Yes. Okay. Okay. That would remind me also, there's the sign-up sheets for Friday night on the back if you're going to be here for the Mother's Day or if you can help us, men. Okay, let's close with a prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here tonight to study your word, and we pray that the strength that we gain gives us what we need to continue through this week in your service. We pray, Father, that we will glorify you, walk in your ways, and be holy as you're holy. Help us never to trust in ourselves or promote ourselves, but always to trust in you. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name, amen.